This is our first guest from Reading, and his name is Hits, and a hell of a story he has got. People sometimes send me like 20 points, 20 talking points. I've got 30 here, and it's almost 7,000 words. So, that's not even like 10% of it. <laughs> Tony Gooch is out in Reading these days as well, I think, in that area, but he didn't grow up there. All right, thanks for coming on, Hits. Let's start with then your father coming to the UK in the 1950s. A lot of the South Asian community from Bangladesh, um, India, Pakistan, a lot of them came over in the 50s to work in the north, Bradford and places like that, I mean, the factories and the mills. Uh, my father was there for a while in Bradford, and then he moved down to Reading to work in a factory. Is this why Bradford's got all the best curry houses? Probably, yeah. <laughs> it's, got, it's got a very large um, South Asian community. Yeah. A very large community. Um, so he came down in, um, I think it was the 60s, he came down to Redden. And that's where we, uh, me and my friends were born. And uh, They all kind of moved into one certain area in, in the west part of Redden. So it's quite a, kind of a, like a close-knit community, if you understand what I mean. Did your father experience racism when he came? racism for them was normal yeah and they never kind of like cared about it if you mm. understand what i mean they just thought like it's not our country because they were making money to feed their families literally because they came from villages and things like that so they felt it was part and parcel it was the cost of doing business exactly yeah so um yeah my father he's told me some stories you know people leaving like excrement outside the houses and things like that you know like I think that was very normal for the South Asian community at that time. Because I grew up in my little town in between Liverpool and Manchester. Racist, homophobic. This is just what the town was like, you know, yeah, back yeah. then. Punk rock, skinheads, all that stuff in the 80s, 70s, 80s. I think it was more blatant in your face at that time. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so they have you, but you got kicked out of school at age 15? Yeah, so... We, where we grew up, um, we all kind of went to school together, like all the same schools and things like that. Um, I went to my first school with my friends and um, I was there for about a year and got kicked out for misbehaving, things mm. like that. I was about 12 and then I got sent to a majority white school, which was very racist. So I think the first day I walked in, I don't know if I could say it, but someone called me. Oh, um, let's just say the P word or the N word. I don't mind, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. Take that one out. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, someone called me like a racist slur the first day I walked in. Yeah. I believe it was my first day. And it was just like that. I don't think they were racist. I think it was just the environment. They wasn't used to different ethnic minorities going to school with them. So I got quite a lot of racism there, but I was never the type of person just to just take it. I would always kind of talk back and that probably got me in a bit more trouble. Um, I was a bit rebellious as a kid. So as the years went by, how, how can I put it? You kind of fight your way to respect, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. So by the time kind of got to like the four fifth year, it was okay. It was fine after that. I actually became friends with some of the people that were racist to me at the beginning. Because they knew they couldn't. Like take advantage of you or anything? I don't think it was that. I just don't think they were racist. Okay. You understand what I mean? I just think like they grew up in a certain area, in a certain environment. It was more ignorance. 
ignorance that's a better word actual racism yeah you know what i mean yeah and I actually speak to some school friends to this day you know yeah mm, yeah actually good lads so you did have beefs with skinheads then see redding has a i'm not going to say no names but he has a long history of close ties with combat 18 and the national front we've got to watch table tapping because it goes into oh, this so, yeah. yeah um has a long history with um with the combat 18 and the national front the story of that starts a bit before me yeah um, probably when i was really young maybe before i was born yeah um our elders who were like 10 15 years older than us the community we came came from you have a, a community from barbados mm. they actually they call bajans they actually have the biggest the biggest bajan community outside barbados is in redden yeah. um that's the actual fact wow and um they have a big south asian community yeah and these two communities suffered a lot of racism before i was born from the skinheads and combat 18 and stuff like that but there was a lot of physical fights and things like that who who were combat 18 then i don't really know much about them myself because it's before my time but they're kind of a far-right racist group like the national front and things like that yeah um you heard of them james combat 18 yeah Oh, that's really? right yeah yeah yeah, that, yeah like i said i don't really want to go into too much detail but it has a long history of this you know but the the bayesians and the asians kept fighting kept fighting kept fighting and obviously as the years went by racism it's kind of racism is like is a dying breed mm. do you understand what i mean so slowly that group of racists kind of like disbanded if you understand what i mean and things like that. and that was before my time though and the rave scene came and chilled them out didn't it as well probably yeah um the the raves we used to go to there wasn't many white people there yeah if you understand what i mean um it, it was quite segregated like that because there's certain types of music and things like that um but, but going on to there 20 years later like a lot of that racism is gone now good like a lot of it yeah i think there's some groups trying to revive it you know but i don't think it's gonna work yeah things are very multicultural now, you know did you want to get into any of the fights you had back then um when i was a kid i'll tell you a few stories of when i was a kid um the boxer prince nazim hamid he was fighting kevin kelly in america i believe it was um 1997 i believe um we were i was about 15 i was one of my pals uh we've gone to watch the fight at a snooker club we've sneaked into the snooker club because we're underage to watch the fight it was a big fight i don't know if you remember prince nassim won we left um the snooker club it was, must have been like two in the morning three in the morning around them times and um we've gone to a takeaway to get some food some fish and chips or whatever there's a bunch of white guys in their mid-30s and as soon as they saw us they start making racist slurs curry smell of curry and but they're with i'm 15 they're like in their 30s <sighs> So you can't really fight them. It's more it's me and my friend. And it's like four or five of them, maybe. So but it hurt though, you know. I could never understand how a person could discriminate against someone based on colour. It just didn't make sense to me. Um so we couldn't say nothing, we just left it. But my friend was with me. He just couldn't let it go. So as we've got our food and walked outside, we're outside the the uh the whole uh takeaway now. And they carried on the racist stuff, but they were drunk. So my mate sweep kicked him in the leg and punched him in his face. And we've instantly just ran. 
because we know if they get their hands on us, we're done. So we've run and we've gone, cut a few streets and we've jumped into a garden and hid. And we could hear the the racist guys saying, where are these, you know, racist slurs, where are they? And if they got their hands on us, we would have been in big trouble. But we managed to get away. But that sort of stuff was quite common in our community. Um, the Reading Football Club, um, that was in our neighbourhood. It was literally like a two streets away from where we lived. So every weekend and sometimes in the weekday, they would have the football matches. And remember, it's not one of the Premier League teams, was it? It's like a Division One, Division Two, And that attracted a lot of the hooligans. So when we were like 11, 12, our parents wouldn't let us out at time of football because it was like a fair thing. We knew the skinheads and the racist guys are outside. And it, that plays on your, I think, psyche as you grow up, you know, you become very defensive. So I remember we can't go out because of the football. But some of the, the elders who were 16, 17, they would go out and they would come back with stories. They were chased, they were caught, they got beat up. And it was like that for the South Asian, Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi community and also the black community, the, the Bayesians, the Jamaicans. Um, it was kind of the norm. You know, some people will fight back. Sometimes they will win, sometimes they will lose. Do you understand? And we grew up in that environment, you know. Um, so that was like something that was quite common. And it wasn't unusual to us. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Like driving, we used to hang out at a park. People driving there and making racial slurs and driving off was just normal. We kind of got used to it, you know. One time, some when we got a bit older, some it's actually a funny story. The end of our road is a T-junction. Uh, it's like a T-junction like It goes from that road Onto a main road um, Some guys drove past And said racist, racist slurs But it was traffic time It's our neighbourhood So we know They're going to get caught In traffic at the top of the road <laughs> So some of the lads From the neighbourhood <laughs> Ran to the bottom of the road <laughs> And caught them And let's say Just give them a beating yeah. I don't think They ever came back after that You know <laughs> So things like that was just it, that was just normal to us. It wasn't, but th see things like that. What that does to you is that changes the way you think, you know. And I believe a lot of these racist experiences is why a lot of people went into the, the criminal life. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Because you kind of, I'm British. I was born here, but you don't feel British. From a very young age, I knew a certain racist word. That's what I was. I was about ten. And I knew that's what I am. I didn't quite understand what it meant, but I knew it was something to do with my skin color. You know, and I, that's not a nice thing, you know, looking back at it now. So you got your hustle on with the hashish at a young age? Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't like a hustle. It was just like, because we used to, a stuff where we used to smoke um, hashish and things like that. So you just buy a little bit just to smoke and, you know, give some to your friends and that, just to make it back so you could buy a pair of trainers or, buy more smoke and stuff like that. We were about 15 years old. Um, we sadly got involved in crime from a very young age, like 10 years old, 11 years old, because of shoplifting and things like that. Our parents that came from the South Asian community, we grew up 10 people in one house, um, in a terrace house. And that was kind of the norm for a lot of the South Asian community and also the, the Bayesian community. Um, and that's because... You had one big family. I had multiple families in the one same big, house. One big family. Yeah. Um, South Asian families are very big families usually. Um, 
our parents or factory workers minimum wage but then also the family back home and the villages they've they need to be looked after to a certain extent so how far is a weekly pay packet going to go so some of the luxuries in life like you know consoles and certain toys and going out for meals we didn't do things like that no one in my community did things like that because the money was used for necessities so that kind of led us to stealing basically for little bits and pieces so yeah so it moved on to things like a bit more serious after that if you understand what i mean and what was your first arrest my first arrest actually was 13 i got arrested for allegedly i gave an older asian guy a bag when he while he was burgling a house and someone saw them someone saw me giving him the bag i was 13 i can't remember even if i gave him the bag and um i was arrested for that but it was like um so stupid it was like a stripe because i was the first one from my group of friends to get arrested and when i did get arrested all my mates gathered in the corner and were like cheering as <laughs> it was it's really strange it's, it's kind of sad when you look at it yeah. you know? uh, because that was looked as a praiseworthy thing and if my kids i wouldn't want my kids to you know live in that environment if you understand what i mean so i got, I got arrested um they asked me who the elder was they were putting names to me but i wouldn't tell them you know i was quite stubborn and my dad my father couldn't speak english properly so he couldn't understand what was going on in the police interview and he was tell he was saying to me oh, you better tell him or when you when you get home you're in trouble and you know what i mean by that but i was just stubborn i was like no i don't know who it is and i was 13 years old it got nfa'd and things like that so yeah that was the first time i got arrested you need to plead the fifth yeah you know in the community we came from you just don't do things like that you know you get kicked out of school at 15 and then you move into selling more serious drugs. Yeah, I don't want to go into what it was and what it wasn't. Um this is when things became much more serious. Um So basically the story of me selling drugs is 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 quite a funny story. Um what happened was when I got kicked out of school, my friends are at a school. So I've no one to hang around with. So I started to hang around with the older lot not older older like so I was 15 there was about 18 19 um they were heavily involved in drug taking they used to take drugs but I had no one to hang around with so I would hang around with them and they would go around doing all sorts of crime anything and everything would go you know and I would just tag along with them so they would always say to me cuz I never smoked and one of the good thing about about these elders were they were smoking harder drugs One of the good things about the elders were if they ever caught me smoking hard drugs they would batter me. So they kind of kept me away from that and I praise them for that to this day. Um so I would hang around with them just to get my hash and my weed, you know, to make a 10 pound, 20 pound or whatever. But these guys were really doing real crime, you know. I don't want to go into it but they were to make their money and whatever. So I would do my little hustles make maybe 500 pound doing this doing that just anything kind of just to make a pound basically so what happened was one of the elders he ticked a lump of drugs off a london criminal london drug dealer so just like to explain that for the american audience then he got drugs on credit on consignment yeah yeah, yeah. so i think the drugs were worth about 5000 pound um like i said i don't want to go into what it was what it wasn't but i'm sure we could use our imagination um but these guys were smokers so they've come back 
and the little firm of them, they just started smoking it um, more than they were actually selling. So the guy from, he was from West London who they've got the consignment from was quite a serious gangster. So I never saw it, but apparently came down this 500 bins with a gun and he told the guy, look, you better pay me or I'm going to deal with you. So the guy had to pay him, you know. So he smoked most of the drugs. He doesn't have any money. He's got a couple of ounces left maybe. So he's turned to us and said, look, what can you put forward? I was like 15, maybe maybe 15, maybe 16. I had um a gold Indian chaps and a gold ring. Must have paid like, I don't know, eight, 900 pounds for it, which was quite a lot of money back then, you know. Um, so he's my elder, I looked up to him, you know. They had my back as well on the street. So... I gave him the the chain and stuff. His other friend got some money for his girl and they raised the money and they paid the the drug dealer back. But with the drugs he had left, I had a car that was broken down at the time. He asked me, could I store the drugs in the back of my car? Because as you probably know with drugs, not everyone wants to store them. So I've put the drugs in the back of my boot. It was a broken down car parked up on the side of the road. And he would call me, bring this out, bring that out, bring this. But he's still doing the same thing. I'm sure he had every intention to pay me and the rest of his friends. But because of the life they were living, it was just reckless. So as the drugs is getting lower and lower and lower, I'm like, yo, I need my money back. Because that was a lot of money to me back then. So what I'd done, I took about what I know to be now, about 10 grams off that drug. And I put it to one side of the car. I said, if he doesn't pay me my money by the time that's finished, that little lump I've took out is rightfully mine. So obviously he didn't pay me. The The line they had, what they were selling the drugs on, they call it lines here, if you know. Um, once they've smoked all the drugs, they started robbing all the clients. <laughs> because they weren't drug dealers, they were just reckless guys on the road, you know. They're nice guys, but they just was caught up. So what I'd done, the line was there one day. I just took the line. There was one customer left on that line. And the 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 lump of drugs I have, he slowly brought them over me, off me over five of over day of over a period of five days, six days. And at that time, this certain product used to go for a thousand pound sorry, a hundred pound a gram. So I made a thousand pound. And I was like shocked, like, yo, how fast it was, because I was always against this drug because I could see the damage it was doing to certain individuals but when you're not used to having money and you get that type of money in four or five days so my friend who I call Makodi um, he's my age so he's with me every day he's still at school I think he's with me every single day so I said to him look I went to, I went to the, the garm shop for the first time brought a Versace iceberg and things like that you know these stupid things so what happened, but we have to re-up now. We have to reload. I don't know any drug dealers to reload from. So my mate, my Cody, who I call, he said to me, you know, we used to smoke. We used to go and smoke at this girl's house. There used to be this West African guy there. And he used to always, my friend, he said, he used to have, have a ball in his sock. And he felt that that person had the drugs that I needed. So we had the girl's number whose house used to be at. We phoned the girl up. She gave the phone to him. I remember we were kids to him. He's a grown man. And I said, oh, I need an eight ball. 
he hung up the phone on me because he's probably thinking like, why, what are you going to do with the eight ball? Because at that time, it wasn't usual for kids to be on the road like that, especially selling drugs. So the girl called me back because we knew the girl. She used to get our cigarettes for us because we couldn't get served from the shop. We were too young at 15 and 16. So I said, look, I want an eight ball. I'm hustling and whatever, whatnot. So he met me. He gave me the eight ball. Once he gave me the eight ball, his, his um, product was very good. Um, he, had a very, he, was, he was from originally from London. So his product was very good. He wasn't a big drug dealer, um, but he could supply me. At that period in Reading, a lot of the people who were actually selling drugs also smoked drugs. Um, the price of a gram was like £100. But when they're going to someone who smokes, he's not giving them a gram. He's probably giving them a 0.8 because he's taken something out of it. So me being young and not knowing no better, so when they will call me for a gram, I will give them a gram. So my name start circling. That reputation. He, reputation is ridiculous. But So what's happened now is I keep going back to this West African brother and I'm buying the most of the drugs he has. And he's saying, what are you doing with this? Are you like selling it in lumps or you break? I said, I'm breaking it down. Um, nowadays on the streets, you have like 10 pound pieces. We never had that back then. You used to have half a teenth, which was a 0.8. You had a gram, which is a gram, and you had a teenth, which is 1.6. Now everything's broken down into like 10 pound and 2 pound and all types of craziness. Um, so he he was much older than me. And he saw the potential, I think. And one day he phoned me up and asked me to come around to his house. I went around to his house and he said he wants a 50-50 partner with me. Um, I was 16 years old. I would have drove to Bulgaria if you asked me to because it doesn't really you know I'm a kid I'm, I've seen money for the first time in my life like whatever is fine I said okay let's let's do this so I had to wait on him for a few weeks then he calls me and he says look let's let's start so I can't remember what it was but off this certain product I was about 16 17 years old at this time um, we brought half a kilo kilo and where we come from like Reading See, anything outside London is usually classed as country. Um, that's what London's referred to, places like Reading Country. So like a, a kilo in country is like five in London. And a, and a kilo in, in, in the late 90s was a lot of weight. And for a 16, 17 year old to have that type of weight, was it was never seen before where we were from. So my, f my friend, the West African brother, he came with a strategy. He said that instead of doing like a hundred pound a gram, let's corner the market and let's do 0.9 for 50 pounds. So you're literally slashing the market. Do you understand what I mean? So you, so it worked out you're making about 1500 pound back, 1400 pound back from a, from an ounce. The ounce is costing us like 600, 580 or something like that. Cause I think it was at that time we were paying like 20 a key, 20 grand a key. So once we did that, that changed a lot of things. Like the money that started coming in at a young age, didn't know what to do with it. So, you know, you're just spending it, wasting it, clothes, anything really just doesn't matter. So we started to make a lot of money. Then a lot of the neighborhood got involved. Friends, non-friends, you know, people were kind of linked to us um, from the way 
the area became known as like a drug area. And because no one in the neighborhood really smoked, the best prices were in that neighborhood. And um, this continued for about a year, year and a half. And then I ended up in prison. Mm. Um, but it was some driving charges. It wasn't something serious. Um, I, I ended up in prison. I was 18 years old. Um, I think I got two months. I had to do a month. My first time in prison. Um, but the prison we was in is my local prison. It's in the middle of our town centre. Like we literally drive past this prison every day. It's called, Banksy recently done the done the portrait outside there. If you, yeah, yeah, I saw something about that. Yeah, yeah it's closed now. The prison's closed down. It was a youth offenders prison. So that's my first time in prison. I've gone there, and um, it was like I wasn't really bothered about it because I know I didn't have a long time. But I, you quite quickly saw the racial side to it. You know, um, there was a lot of guys from the coast. In that prison, like Portsmouth, Southampton, around them areas. So the way Reading Prison was, it was done in tiers, kind of sort of thing. So you have one, two, and three, and one and two and three don't mix with each other on the tiers. You might go on the yard together for education. So there's a gate between each tier. They've put me on the threes. They've put me onto the threes. I was the only Asian guy on there, and there was a gang of guys from the coast. I won't. Say exactly from where I could feel a vibe from them But I had a bit of a reputation there Because it's my local prison So some people knew me And you know, knew I was a drug dealer And whatever whatnot. Um, So what happened was There was one particular individual He was a leader Kind of off that group of people And he would always give me Like some funny vibe I couldn't really I can't really explain it As we went by A week went by or whatever Another Asian kid came in And they banged him up with me. They banged the kid up with me. And so me and him are the only two Asian kids on the on the landing. Then you have the twos and the ones. So we're on the threes. So one day, the guy who they banged up with me, Asian lad, he's walked back into the cell with his hand on his face. I said to him, what happened? He goes, ah, oh, that same guy punched him in his face. I was like, wow, like, there's no drama, no issue, just... For nothing But he obviously didn't tell the prison officers They banged us up And as soon as they banged the door Over lunch it was um, The racist lad started From, from the windows To me you All these racist any, All the racist slurs you could think about You know We're going to get you When the doors open up We're going to do this We're going to do that And By this time I'd been conditioned From the roads You can't scare me that easily Do you understand what I mean? I was like, yeah, whatever, we'll see what happens. You know, I've took so many ass beatings as a kid that another ass beating don't mean nothing. But the screws heard, obviously, they're shouting through the door. At that time, the prison system didn't really take racism that seriously. Um, if you remember that lad, um, I believe his name was Zaid Mubarak, was killed to death by a cell racist cellmate in Felton mm. while he was sleeping. So um, that happened in, I think, 2000. 2001 I think it was So racism was rife inside prisons In certain prisons So what happened The prison officers moved me from the threes Me and my cellmate To the twos Remember we can't interact So what what's happened now Is that evening So now you've got me and my cellmate And there's three other Asian lads There's one lad from East London 
he's on a murder charge in there, Asian lad. There's one lad from Slough, and there's one lad from Ellsbury. And so, and me and my cellmates, so it's five of us now. These um, racist kids, they've started the whole night until two, three in the morning. Went on and on and on. And the thing is, we can't say anything racist back because we don't have anything against white people. So it'd be stupid as saying something back when we have white friends. Do you understand what I mean? So we just kind of had to take it to a certain extent. I had, at this time, I never had long left to go home. Um, we came out in the in the next day. We had a meeting on association. And I was like, look, let's move to these guys. This is, And it was much more of them, though, between 10 and 15. It was five of us. The brother from East London who was on the murder charge, he was a very sensible, mature guy. He said to me, look, they're idiots. You're going home. You're going home to something. Just forget about it, you know? That was a bitter pill to swallow, you know? Like, and the thing is, there's other people from my town who are going to report back to the streets. That's an L. Like, that's an L, you know? So it was a hard pill to swallow. That evening, they started again. Same stuff again, you know, this, that, all this racist stuff. But this time, they're threatening us now. They're threatening us all when we catch you lot, blah, blah, blah. So next day we came out again and we had another meeting and we said, look, just be on point because these guys might do something. So we agreed, we all, we all agreed with each other that if they come at us, no one runs off. We've got to stand our ground and no matter what, we've got to fight back. So at the way Reading Prison was based, you go get your lunch and as for example, the twos are getting their lunch, you're coming out of the, the servery area, the threes are going in. So that's the only real time we're going to see them now because exercise, I think, was locked off because of the potential beef. Um, so we've got our dinner. And for some silly reason, at that time, Red in Prison gave these metal trays. The metal trays with holes in them where you put your food in. It's like a weapon, to be honest with you. So we went and got the dinner first. So as we're walking back down the stairs, going back to our cells, we saw the racist lads turn the corner. So we're ready though. We know this might be something. So as they've turned the corner, I saw a couple of shanks get pulled up. But because we were prepared for it, we, it wasn't a surprise attack. So the main guy, the so-called leader, I will never forget him, you know, because it was just a violation. I kind of jumped on him and I've grabbed the shank, you know. I don't know what he's got in the other hand, what he's trying to do. I've grabbed the, the shank I could see, I think he was in his left hand. I grabbed the shank and as I've grabbed it, I've managed to get it off him and I've just stuck him with the shank a couple of times. I've poked him. Self-defense. And in prison, fights don't last very long. If they last a minute, you're done well. Buzz has gone off. But as this fight's taking place, his friends have ran off because my mates have got the trays, all you're hearing, clack, clack. <laughs> so his mates have surprised by the reaction. And they've just run. But he's on the floor now. I'm on top of him. The screws come. They do this wrist thing where they bend up your wrist and stuff. Took us to the block. But remember, everyone's seen everything. I'm not worried about it because it's self-defense. But in the block now, when we got into the block, obviously he's been stabbed once or twice or whatever it was. They've took him to the block waiting, waiting on healthcare to come up. And remember, these are prison shanks. Not that serious, you know. They're not like... 
these zombies we have on and Rambo knives. It's basic pieces of metal that are sharpened. So he's shouting through the door now, stuff like, you try to kill me, you fuck. I was like, how did you become the victim in this? <laughs> he's just going crazy down there. So I spoke to him through the door. I said, look, let me just say something. All I said to him was, you spoke that racist stuff for two days and you got poked up like an idiot. It's best you have some humility and just be quiet now, you know? He actually went quiet because he realized like how embarrassing it was. You started this whole thing for no reason and now somehow you've become the victim. So we had adjudication and this is, um, we had adjudication with the governor and I don't know if you remember them days it was the prison governor that handed out extra days. Like, so if you do something wrong, the governor could give you 30 days and whatever. If it's more serious, it's outside charges. But because of the racist abuse and the threats were logged, obviously on the prison manifesto, whatever it is, they knew what they were saying because they were saying it out the door all night. So it's logged down. So I went into the adjudication. I said, look, self, what do you want me to do? Get stabbed. Self-defense, you know? We all, all the Asian lads got found not guilty. Don't know what happened to the other lads. We all got found not guilty. I was there for a little while longer and I went home. This is very messed up to say, but it was a very proud moment, you know, because we felt that this was oppression and we stood up to, it was like a kind of a tyranny sort of thing. So it was like a really proud moment in the prison for us where people walking past us, like praising <laughs> us because they were racist. And remember, not every white person is racist. So even some of the white people were like, Good job, the guy's an idiot. Do you understand <laughs> what I mean? And whatever. Never saw the guy again after that. You turned the tables on the dickheads. Mm, yeah. So you jumped to 18, but back when you were 16, there was the guy with the baseball bat. Yeah, this is another. You know, growing up, I was quite cheeky. And if someone racially abused me or, or said something to me, I wouldn't just take it. I would always say like something back, like F off or whatever, if I have to run off. I wasn't one of them guys that just folded. I never had it in me to just kind of fold. Um, this group of individuals, before I kind of get into that, I've got to make a really important point. See Redding on the street level. You had um, a couple of Asian groups. Well, I'm sure some people say it was gangs. There wasn't gangs. It was just you had a couple of different Asian groups. You had a few Bayesian groups and you had a few Jamaican groups. Uh, but we had a group of Yardies. Um, the Yardies were really into making money. They wasn't really into the petty street stuff and stuff like that. They were really kind of making a lot of money. Did you say Asian, Bayesian and Yardies? Yeah, Bayesians are from Barbados. Okay. Yeah, they have a strong community there. And um, the ties between the Asian and the Bayesian community have always been very close because of the racism, what I explained before. So this was kind of on the street level. The Asians, and then you also, sorry, you also had the West Africans. The West Africans were the latest addition. And they were from places like Nigeria, Ghana, in around that area. Um, this was the demographics of the street. When, when I say Asian people, I'm not talking about, not all Asians are criminals. I'm talking from the criminal perspective. So when I say Asian people or Bayesian people, I'm talking about Asian, Bayesian, Jamaican street guys. So I don't want you to think every Pakistani is a, is a criminal. So what's happened now, the Asian Asians got involved in crime in, like, I think, the 90s. But they wasn't respected on the bigger, bigger kind of, like, map of crime. It was just local petty crime and things like that. Some of them within our community turned to bullies, where the 
the guys who were slightly older, so say we were like 11, 12, they were bulliers. So now we've got bullying from the white racist and we've got bullying within our own community because I felt like it was a reaction for them because these particular individuals couldn't fight racists and they didn't have a name on the street. So they were bullied us a lot. You had some nice guys as well, but a certain group of them were, were, were very like, they used to thrive on bullying people. So that particular individual bullied me from a very young age, like 11, 12, 13. So when I was 16, obviously, I'm making money on the roads. I brought like a nice car, it was an Astra GTE. In the 90s, that was like a nice car, you know? It was an Astra GTE. I woke up one day and the car had been destroyed, literally. Someone's absolutely violated the car. So words got to me that is him. He's the one who's done it. Obviously, me being angry, I was like, I'm not a kid no more. You can't just do that anymore. You know, I'm, I'm, I, in my head, I was a big man. <laughs> so I've approached him. As I've approached him, he's with a few friends and he's pulled out this aluminium baseball bat. I don't know how dangerous he could have been with it. I don't know. So it was like an aluminium baseball bat. You could see it. He's pulled it out. He's kind of trying to swing at me a few times, but he's not got a good grip on it. So I've just snatched the baseball bat off him. And it wasn't like I knew what I was doing. I just literally swung it, knee-jerk reaction back. But it's the way it's connected. It's hit him on the lip here. And it's opened up. And you can see his middle teeth. But the blood that must be around that area, he's literally leaking blood. Like leaking blood. Fight kicks off. We start scrapping and whatever. Someone takes the baseball bat off us. We start scrapping or whatever. Please turn up. I get arrested for GBH. Um, but there were so many people saw what happened. The police asked me what happened. I said, look, he tried to hit me. I took it off him. I swung back Like I was defending myself Like I said I never had that nature Of letting you come at me With my knife And I'm running off I just didn't have that in me Do you understand what I mean Yeah It was always like Go for the knife Go for the bat And things like that Sometimes it went wrong You know <laughs> Sometimes it didn't You know um, I, I tried to take a glass bottle Of someone Once in a, in, a, in a fight And I missed When I tried to grab He hit me in the head with it You know So sometimes it went right Sometimes it went wrong On this occasion It went right but when that happened, he backed off. For, for then, he backed off. He stopped with the bullying for a while, you know. And uh, I think what really hurt them, we were making money. And a lot of the things I will tell you about today, they're resolved. There's no outstack. I wouldn't even talk about something that was an issue. They're resolved, you know, conversations would take. When I left the streets, conversations happen and, you know, all this stuff is resolved now. You mentioned knives then. There was a situation with a Stanley knife as well. Yeah, um, so the, the older friends I told you about, um, I was with them one day and just new into the drug scene and whatever. There was an area um, in Reading that was controlled by Yardies. And Yardies means like they're from Jamaica. They're not, from, they're not born over here. And they kind of, they were the nearest thing to organised crime at that time. Oh, sorry, to, <clears throat> to, to organised crime. So they wouldn't let you sell drugs in their neighborhood. You couldn't go, they couldn't burgle houses in the neighborhood. And it was actually quite, some, some of it was actually quite good because they wouldn't let anyone just go there and do stupidness. They didn't sell A-class drugs though. They only sold um, cannabis and things like this. And they were a very famous gang. They hit the, the newspapers when they got caught and everything. So their offshoots sold A-class drugs. My elder went into their neighborhood 
to sell A-class drugs. And they saw him and whatever. So I was six, yeah, I was 16 at that time. My mates, the older, come pick me up. As he's picked me up, this Jamaican guy's in the, behind us in a car following us. So my mates pulled up in an underground car park. Um, as he's pulled up, the Jamaican guy's with another friend. So one of the friends, one of my older friends starts fighting with the other guy with the Jamaican guy. And the Jamaican guy's pulled out a Stanley knife. And he's speaking Patwa. And I'm 16. And I'm hearing him talk. And it's like out of the movies. He's like, he's going to kill this guy. So he's swinging this knife at him. And he was known to be a serious guy with his blade. Like he didn't play around. So he was swiping, swiping. And my friend's backing off, trying to kick out, trying to keep him away. And I don't know what, is the adrenaline, I saw my friend nearly getting slashed. So I jumped on the back of the, the yardie guy and I pulled the blade out of his hand. And I don't know if you can see that mark there. So I pulled the blade out of his hand now. I grabbed the blade and the blade's kind of dropped and Stanley's opened up and we got into a little altercation. Police sirens came and cut long story short, the situation, you know, um, that was it. A few days later, I had to get a few stitches in my fingers. It was just very light. It wasn't that major. Um, a few days later, I'm walking down the main road. There's a bookies. The Jamaican fella's outside the bookies. I'm by myself. And um, the Jamaican fella said to me, oh, come here. And I was like, nah, I'm not coming, you know, because he's across the road from me. And um, he said to me, nah, come, it's okay, it's cool, come here. And he's speaking in Patwa. And I was like, nah, I'm not coming there. I'm trying to call my mates up, look, hurry up and come, the Jamaican guy's here. But he's like, but he's, he's forgotten about what happened. It was a couple of days ago, what's done is done. And he was kind of like, ah, oh, like, I respect what you did. You know, you helped your friend and whatever. And after that time, never had an issue with that guy ever again. Because he was just making a point. He just made a point like, don't sell drugs in my neighborhood. And that was it. And that was his point. And he made his point. Mm -hmm. And he kind of was like, kind of respectful to the way that we handled ourselves. So yeah, see things like that when we was on the street, that was just the norm. When you're, when you're in that drug game on the street level, you can have dramas every single like day sometimes, you know, with people. So it was just like a normal thing for us. So one of your mantras came from Tupac. In yeah. times of danger, don't freeze. Time to be a G. You know, um, music played a big part in our lives. When, when we were growing up, um, garage music was a big thing. Um, we was never really into garage music. Um, the Jamaicans listened to a, a music called Bashment. Um, the West Africans and the South Asians, we listened to rap music, American rap music. And Tupac was like the biggest star for us. And he said, you know, you're on the street and you're picking up stupidness from music, you know. It's like, how can I put it? It's like a, like a, it's like a guidebook. Do you understand what I mean? In a way, a manual. Mm -hmm. And I remember he said in one of his tracks, in one of his songs, he said, in times of danger, don't freeze, time to be a G. And we kind of really stood for that. So anytime we had have issues, it was like kind of subconsciously already in your head, you know. So rap music played a massive part in our upbringing. And from a very young age, you know, we were into like, we, we, we only ever listened to American hip hop because you didn't ha really have British rap at that time. I think that came much later on. What do you listen to now? Um, this is a different subject, but I'm Muslim. So we shouldn't really listen to music. It's one of the subjects I struggle with a lot 
but I try not to listen to music. Wow, okay. Yeah. There was another situation where a guy put a knife to your back and tried to rob you. Yeah, this individual actually got a life sentence for stabbing someone years down the line. Killing them? He killed him. Yeah, he's, in, he's actually in prison right now. Um, he got a life sentence. Um, I was I had a shift on the roads. I was I was on the roads. Had a had like a come off the roads at night. It's a place called Shabins. I don't know if you know what that is. Mm. Shabins is like a it's like kind of houses where you go buy weed, run by West Indians. So I've gone there to buy buy some weed to smoke, and as I'm at the door waiting, this individual's crept behind me. But I know him. He knows me. You know, he's put a knife in my back. He's put the point of it in my back. He's not stabbed me. He's put the point of it so I could feel it. And he said to me, give me your money. Because he knew I had money on me because I just finished a shift. But like I said, we were very stubborn. I was like, I'm not giving you anything. I'm not giving you money. He's like, give me the money. I'm going to stab you. I was like, no, nah, I'm not giving you nothing. But he never realized my friend was in the car. So my friend has seen what happened. He's crept up slowly behind him. And he's just punched him. And as he's punched him, he's fell on the floor, dropped the knife, and he's ran. But my friend said, nah, we can't let him go today. Like, this is, enough's enough, you know, this is, because we were getting a lot of problems like this on the street. People trying to do, like, petty robberies, and the 90s was the era of street robberies. A lot of street robberies were taking place in the 90s. Um, said, nah, we're not having this. We caught him and we just battered him. And that set, like, an example. But that, that battering led to so many other problems from his friends and it kind of like spiraled out of control to a certain extent. This was in the late 90s. Because then you get attacked by 30 to 40 gang members. It, this, it was because this was a part of it. So he, he was linked up with a firm um, on the streets. So what's, they're, they're like a street firm. They're not into drug dealing. They're just like kind of street robberies and petty crimes like that. Uh, what's happened is, so now he's from a certain neighborhood. I'm from a certain neighborhood. So an issue started. The issue was there from before. But this is kind of escalating it. How the issue actually started, it had to, remember I told you about the chain and the ring? Oh, they attempted to rob me about a year before that at a petrol station for my chain and my ring. But I didn't give it to them. And I ended up calling my friends into a standoff. And that was actually how it kind of started. This was just an add-on to what happened. So what's happened is, he's um, obviously he's put the knife on my back. He's never got nothing. Um, a few days later, or some a time period later, I've seen one of his friends in the town centre. I've gone to buy a, a, a police scanner. When you get the scanners, you could do the police um, frequency. We had a few of them. Yeah, so I've, I've gone to buy one of them. As I've gone to buy one of them, I've seen his friends. They've surrounded me. And one of them like, kind of jabbed me in my chest. You know, like, oh, you try to beat my cousin up. But I'm like, he was, he's not even your cousin. But is this an excuse? If you understand what I mean. So what's happened is I called my friends up and a little altercation happened where they had to run out of town. They've left the town centre, they've run off. Um, but they took that as an L because they had to run off. So what's happened after that, there was a lad from my neighbourhood. He's not a street guy, but he knows all the street guys. He was seeing a girl in their neighbourhood and they knew he used to go there. So one day he's come out of the neighbourhood and as he's come out of the neighborhood, they've jumped him. And they beat him quite badly. They've uh, they hit a hammer on his head and cracked his head open. They broke his car. <sighs> and over, over nothing, really. You understand what I mean? So 
we're about 17 this time. So we've gone obviously looking for them now. So they've got the word, these guys are looking for you lot. We're looking, looking, can't find them. The main, the main guy. We can't find the main guy. So we've gone back to our neighborhood. About a few days later, there must have been a carnival. And these them lads were at the carnival. So we've got a phone call from from the carnival. Some of our friends at the carnival. They said, look, be careful. We think they're raising up soldiers to come to your neighborhood. Well, I didn't really take it seriously, to be honest with you. You know, we carried on selling our drugs and whatever, whatnot. So as we're there, it was, the front line was a park. So you make the you make the client come to the back of the park, serve him, and the client leaves. So what would happen was they came through the front and we got like a 100 meter place to run but we got nowhere to run because we're in our own neighborhood and it's like I, I can't say exactly how much it was it was like 30, 40, 50 people they've come there and oh, I was like oh, damn we got caught slipping basically but it was either run now or stay and try to stand tall it was three of us so we decided to stay it was but there was nowhere to run. There was there was nowhere to go. Because if we run, we run out of our neighborhood. Yeah. Which might be even worse. Do you understand what I mean? Running to someone else's neighborhood. So we stood there, they came, they attacked me. They jumped me, tried some stuff, and my mates tried to jump in, but it was just too many of them. They got the better of me. So after this happened, obviously, I'm furious. And I was so stupid because they, they used their hands on me. And I said, what, is that it? Because I was angry and I couldn't physically do anything. It was my mouth again. I said, what, is that it? And the guy got angry. And when he got angry, he went to pull, I believe it was a knife he went to take out his pocket. But as he took the knife out, remember they've walked three miles from the carnival, 50, 30 lads making noise. So a police cars pulled up at that moment when he's gone to pull something out of his jacket. So that kind of probably saved me from getting stabbed because... That was like a rub in his face Like is that it <laughs> But I was just so upset There was Nothing else I could do So that Happened I called up Because obviously remember now The neighbourhood Is quite heavily involved In the drug, drug trade These guys are not So It's not even a level playing field Between us and them But they just got More numbers than us so the neighbourhoods made a phone call to certain figures in the underworld and whatever, you know, like older people or whatever. And obviously like, we were prepared for them the second time if they ever came back. So what's happened, two lads from my neighbourhood, I think later on that evening or the next evening, caught one of their guys and they've just beat him unconscious and just left him. Um, they've left him there, beat him unconscious. And we knew they're going to come back to the neighborhood. But this time the neighborhood's ready for them to come back. So they've come back this time, about 10 people, 12 people, whatever. They've come back into the same park again. So we're all there. Like I said, see the neighborhood. This is one of the misconceptions a lot of people have about neighborhoods. Not everyone is friends, if you understand what I mean. If, you're, if we're from the same neighborhood, we might not like talk to each other. If there's a beef in that neighborhood, you have to fend it, even though we don't know each other, because you're representing the neighborhood. So we're in the park now. There's a whole bunch of people. Some are some are my friends, some are not. So these guys have come in thinking it's going to be the same thing as last time. 
But when they've walked into the park, they start talking some madness about, oh, you lot got to pay tax and stuff like that now because we violated. So we're just laughing at them like whatever. So one of the lads has pulled a gun on them. So he's, pull, he's pulled out a gun on them. I don't know who the lad was or whatever, but he's pulled a gun on them. And once, he, once he's pulled it, that's it. It kind of like diffused. Um, you know the scene out of, um, what film was it? Snatch. And the Desert Eagle point five. Have you seen that? Yeah, what? yeah. It was kind of a little bit like that. Like when they saw the guy have the gun, they were like, and they kind of had to leave, leave the park with their tails between their legs. Um, that de-escalated the drama for a period of time. Um, some of these issues went on for quite a while. That's just the nature of the streets. You know, people just don't let things go. And by this time now, like the neighborhood was heavily involved in drugs, like heavily. Um, yeah, so that was that saga there, basically. And then some racists attacked or were abusing some Muslim women. Yeah. Um, after, you know, what happened in America around that period of time, um, about 20 years ago, um, there was a barrage of racist abuse towards Muslims. Uh, you know, just innocent women, kids and whatever. Um, in our neighborhood, there was, um, must have been a woman, she had a hijab on, a head covering. Some like sort of drunk, drunk sort of guys, you know, come out of a pub or something. I don't know what they were doing, what they weren't doing. Um, they gave this woman, uh, there, was a, there was a few women I think there, of really bad racial abuse and because she was a Muslim. And that's one of the things, we had a strong Muslim identity even when we were on the streets because it kind of bonded us together. Do you understand what I mean? Um, being Muslim, colour does not matter. Like black, white, Asian, you know, we had that bond between us. So these fellas, they said some racist stuff. Some guys from the neighbourhood got called and they battered these guys so bad. When these guys left them, people wasn't sure if the people were still alive. Because the battering was so bad Because it was personal Like why are you bothering Innocent women for Like they've got nothing To do with anything Like if you want a drama Go to a man And have a drama And um, I personally didn't have Nothing to do with it But it was in the Like I said A lot of the stuff happened A lot of stuff that happens In the neighbourhood It gets attributed to you anyway Just because you live In the neighbourhood So when the police look at it You're involved Because you come from the neighbourhood And that's, that's That's not always the case so when he was 18, the police alleged some older gang members tried to attack or rob you guys. Then they alleged you went back with a firearm. Yeah, we actually went prison. We went prison for this. Um, we'd done some time for it. So basically, um, what happened was, we was, um, the neighborhood was heavily involved in drugs at this time. Like very heavily involved in drugs. Um, being from country outside London, the neighborhood was probably moving like 10 kilos a month which is a lot of weight 20 years ago, you understand? That brought a lot of jealousy towards the neighborhood. So what happened, one of the mistakes people in the neighborhood start making is buying jewelry and cars. <laughs> um, so me and, my, me and my friends, we brought like a Porsche 911, a brand new BMW, um, Rolex watches. And I mean, we, we were 18 years old. We were kids, you know? We didn't think we were kids, but we were kids. So what's happened is when we brought them things, it caused a lot of attention. Like how these kids get these things. I remember it was, it was a bunch of people in my neighborhood now wearing Rolex watches, driving around in BMWs and stuff like that. So one day what's happened is, remember the, the fella with the baseball bat? 
okay, he's a part of this thing. <laughs> so there was a house, there was a house where that was used by people in the neighborhood to chop up drugs. They sort of chop the drugs up and just disperse it from that house. It belonged to a girl, the house did. One day me, uh, my Cody's, we've walked into the house and the fella that I've hit with the baseball bat is with, with some other goons in the house. So we knew straight away, this is a setup. You know, we've got set up. Doors being blocked. I used to keep a machete inside the house. So I've gone for the machete, but they've took the machete. The machete's gone. So we know we have to get out of this house. We've got to get out of this house because, but there's no drugs in the house. They believe there's drugs stashed in the house. There's no drugs in the house. Because it's not used as a stash house. It's used as a chopping up house, you know? So we're in the house. You know, we've we've got out of there. We've, we've all managed to get out of there to a certain extent and harm. One of my friends got a bit of um bruising to his knuckle and stuff like that. There was nothing major. We've got out of there. Um, we've left. And then this is what the authorities allege happened afterwards. This is the allegation. They say that we went back with a 9mm handgun and shot one of the other guys in the arm, I believe. I think they said it was the arm, I think. In one of the arms. That we shot him and then I think they, they alleged a few hours later we kidnapped his friend and tortured him and whatever, whatnot. Some allegation like that. So anyway, we get arrested. Um, four of us get arrested, me and three of my friends. So this is the allegation, attempted murder, possession of firearm. Attempted, the charges were attempted murder, possession of firearm, grievous bodily harm and kidnapping. That was the charges. But remember, these guys, this is their thing. They rob people. So it could have been any of 30 people that could have carried this out. But it was just convenient that, you know, at that time, it looked like they could pin it on us. So what happened was, um, we, we're taken on trial now a year later. We're taken on trial for this a year later. And um, we've gone on trial. And at the trial, a lot of commotion has started. These individuals... Remember, they're robbers, they steal. So in that year, they've been stealing from other people and doing all types of other, other madness. So we've first of the trial started, trials begun. One of their relatives, part of the, their gang, you could call it, he got shot while the trial was going on, while it was happening. So obviously, initially, obviously they thought it was something to do with us whatever whatnot but we actually got arrested for it while the trial was going on let us go obviously had nothing to do with us so there's a lot of stuff going on in the courtroom and things like that you know a lot of police have sometimes the police have to be inside the courtroom because their people are coming and it's turning into a bit of a drama to be honest um community leaders are getting involved and oh, I'll, I'll show you a few a few of the documents later so anyway so what's happened is coming towards the end of the trial Allegedly, someone tries to shoot another one of them in the head. You know, so now obviously the judges put a media blackout on the case. You know, they could do that; they could put a blackout on the case until the verdict comes in. They've put a media blackout on the case, and the trial's finished. Verdict's coming. First charge: attempted murder. We got found not guilty. Second charge: possession of firearm. We've got found not guilty. So obviously, we're thinking we're walking. You know. Third charge, kidnapping the fan is guilty. 
fourth charge GBH with intent that was nothing to do with the alleged like torture or gun, gun a pistol whipping or whatever whatnot we got found not guilty couldn't really understand that what's kind of happened here we didn't really understand but the jury kind of knew they're lying the the victims are lying because forensically it was proven a fact there was one shot fired there was it was proven there was one shot fired when these guys took the stand they told lies like there was 20 shots fired you know people like people to try to deliberately get you in trouble they would just like talking stupidness and one of their one of the so-called star witnesses took the took the stand and he had actually a history of lying to the police so the defense barrister asked him are you an honest person he said no <laughs> because he couldn't say yes because it's on paper that he's lied to the police before so it was like even the jury of it looked at it like this is a shambles like how is this even going on and then they asked him the guy who got shot they asked him why did you get shot he said because they stole my car stereo it's like what type of, have you ever heard anyone getting shot over a car stereo you understand what i mean <laughs> like they couldn't be honest and say look they their job was to rob drug dealers and some other drug drug dealers come and rob them i mean come and shot them they couldn't admit that so they kind of try to pin it on us and because like i said they used to rob drug dealers so we got so we got found um uh, guilty we've, we've gone prison now obviously we, we didn't get long we were we were youth offenders so we got a couple of years in prison and this was a uh, the first time i've actually been in prison as a sentence prisoner i've never been in before um as a sentence prisoner outside my local prison so i'm a sentence prisoner now going to a different jail um i went to um we started off in reading and then they moved us on from there to um hmp guys marsh can i get a bit of water yeah help yourself yeah sorry my mouth's getting a bit um tired. hmp guys marsh and you said earlier about the guy who was beaten to death by his in his sleep by his racist soulmate yeah and that motivated you to sleep regularly with a shank yeah so in i think i believe it was it should be on the internet i think his name was zahid mubarak i believe i'm not 100 i can't 100 yeah remember. i've got it here zahid mubarak, mubarak yeah in 2000 and i believe it was one or 2000 the prison officers put a, a racist cellmate in his soul the morning he was meant to be going home the racist cellmate battered him to death oh, in his sleep he was meant wow. to be going home in the morning so you know people don't understand you know no, no offense to no one but you can't understand racism unless you're an ethnic minority in this country it's very difficult to understand it you understand what i mean yeah. it's like you constantly have to be on the defensive so that was a big issue for us in prison like someone might try something or whatever and to be honest with you you know we hear about these so-called muslim gangs in prison some of it is romanticized i'll be very honest with you but a lot of a lot of it started over self-defense it was a self-defense mechanism when you look at a lot of gangs they start as a self-defense mechanism against racism do you understand what i mean that was my next question because i interviewed mozam last week in liverpool who was in guantanamo bay okay yeah you familiar i, I heard his name before yeah. yeah yeah and he was in there and he said that um the muslim population of united and are very strong in the uk prisons yeah um like i said a lot of it in the media don't pay attention to it is is like they'll tell you sharia laws in prison <laughs> i've never saw it 
and I'm a Muslim. You know, it's like some of this stuff is just nonsense. What they say, they try to paint this very negative brush on Muslim, on Muslims in prison. You know, but as a self-defense mechanism, it is there, and it had to be there because, like I said, people have been killed just for being black or Asian. Do you understand what I mean? And whatever. So, um, the Muslims in prison, like, if I'm in, no matter what prison I'm in. If I'm in a prison where a Muslim has an issue, you gotta help him. I'm not, and I'm not talking about violently. I'm not speaking about that. If you could speak for him or get him out of that situation, or if he owes someone money, and if he genuinely owes someone money in prison, try to pay his debt. You have that unity inside prison, and obviously sometimes you gotta defend yourself on a on a physical one. Do you understand what I mean? And um, see, in the UK prisons, you have different levels of prisons. You have um, high security, ACAT, which is usually like Long Larton, um, Whitemore and places like this. Then you have BCATs. I, I believe Parkers used to be a BCAT, Rye Hill. Then you get CCATs, Guys Marsh, Wellingborough, Only, And then you get DCATs, Open Prison. So the higher you go up in the security levels, the more brutal the violence gets. Sometimes the, the younger... The, the other prisons are violent But the prisons Remember you have lifers And they're doing 30 years 40 years And the level of brutality Will be different In them prisons So yeah That is one of the allegations That Muslims run the prison system you know? In the negative way The media try to portray it No I don't agree with that I don't believe it's like that Do you understand what I mean? Yeah In the negative way Trying to make it like some gang But a lot of the Muslims there Won't let you sell drugs which is a good thing It's not a bad thing You know But they will never speak About things like that Because there's a rife Drug problem In UK prisons Do you understand what I mean? Yeah that's one of the things We discussed last week Because mm -hmm. in America The biggest money maker For all of the gangs Of all of the races Is selling drugs that's Exactly yeah and No one get better Get in the way of that Otherwise exactly, you yeah. are In some prisons I've gone to You can't really get caught Selling drugs as a Muslim Especially at certain places Like Friday prayers they just won't have it, you know, and which is a good thing, obviously. Um, the 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 some of the Muslim brothers in there they won't profiteer from drug dealing. Do you understand what I mean? So, which is kind of a praiseworthy thing. I understand the criminals, I understand they're in prison, but you got to still live. It's still a community. Do you understand what I mean? You know, K Proverbs came on your show, and um, I loved some of his stories. We just interviewed him again. Yeah, I saw it yeah. part two, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's not out yet. It's, it's going to yeah. be out there in a month some, or so. Some of the stuff that he he spoke about, and some of the individuals he spoke about in prison, um, it, it's true. You know, like inside there, you is a community. You have to live with other people. You understand what I mean? Yeah. So you have to accept the same way we have a community out here where you got to accept other people. You got to accept people in there. And I feel that Muslims are demonized a lot. For this whole prison I've never met a prison gang In my life in prison But I've met Muslim brothers That will That have something similar In common Their faith Do you understand what I mean So yeah That's That's definitely there 2002 Guy's Marsh Prison A friend of yours Was attacked Um Oh this is another story So In So we went from Reading HMP Youth Offenders That's a romance centre to a sentence prison called um, Guy's Marsh I believe is in Somerset If I'm not mistaken So when I've got there 
that was a very strange prison i can imagine somerset yeah somerset no but the reason why it was very strange is they had i believe six or eight house blocks i think six of the house blocks were adult prisoners 21 and over um two house blocks were youth offenders but on places like education gym you mix with the adults which is very strange you know i never experienced that before in prison so there was two youth offender houses there was Anglia House and there was, um, what was it? Anglia and Dorset. They were the two houses, house blocks. But on induction, you come to Anglia. That's where you do your induction. I've got to that prison and I've literally walked out onto the association and I couldn't see one coloured face. Not one. I immediately done a U-turn back to myself took out a toothbrush with two razor blades and burnt them in because I just knew this is going to be a problem sooner or later. But I was friends with a guy there um, from, from Southampton. He had a bit of sway in that prison on that wing. So I genuinely at that point didn't, ha didn't have any problems. So one day they came, the prison officers came and said, who wants to move to Dorset House? And nobody put their hands up. I, I didn't understand why. But Dorset House had TVs because the electricity was just, not electric, sorry, not the, the plug sockets. That was like a new thing in prison to, for prisoners to get TV. So Anglia House never had that facility to have TVs. Um, Dorset House did. So when they said, who wants to go on Dorset House? I was like, yeah, I want to go to Dorset House, get TV. But a lot of the white guys didn't put their hands up and I couldn't understand why. So anyway, so I said, okay, fine. I've gone to Dorset House and then I realised why because it was the opposite of Anglia House it was all black brothers like 90% so I was like oh, okay that's why they didn't want to come on here you know and there was white people on there but you know the multicultural ones who get along with everyone yeah so I was on there for a while and you know prison or stuff like you know people smoke weed and things like that and I think I got a negative piss test or something and they took me back to Anglia House. And by this time, I've made very good friends with uh, Muslims from South London. They were Revert Muslims. Um, they, showed me a, they showed me a lot of respect. And we had a long relationship after that, you know, on the, on the streets. They were like uh, known figures in South London. So um, they moved me back to Anglia House. And it was actually one of their friends that has now landed in Anglia House, just new into the prison. So he's just landed new. He don't know anyone on there. I'm the only really coloured face on there. He's gone into the showers the first day. And when you go into prison, they give you a pack. You get tobacco in there and some sweets and some crisp and silly things like that. He's gone to the shower. Three white lads have walked in behind him and try to rob him. But this lad's from Brixton. And Brixton guys are tough. They don't really play this. They thought he's going to give the pack. He start fighting all three of them. You, 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 you're going to have to kill him to take that pack off him. Because <laughs> he's a soldier. It's a pride thing, you know, like, he ain't giving the pack, you know. No one saw it happen, though. He's come out the showers. He's put up a good fight. He's come out the showers. And he's come to me straight away. He's told me, look, these guys are trying to move to him. I want to go again with them. And... I, can I back him? 
you know he, he could he could handle them don't get me wrong but it's three of them is one, one of him but this is the problem now we're on a white wing so i'm like okay if we move to him them three sorry what happens where does everyone else stand but there was a fella um from east london romford i won't say his full name but his name was wayne he he was like a a very good guy he's from london romford multicultural i don't think a color has any any issue with him he was like a boss for the white guys you saw the the aura he had around him he had, he had the boss he had the aura of a boss and me and colin uh, me and uh, me and this fella had a, had a very good relationship um i said to him look they try to rob my boy and he wants to get back like i was basically asking him where do you stand he's like listen tell me, these guys didn't like these three the three white fellas out because they were robbing not just colored people they were robbing anyone white guys or whatever and i think people just had enough of them so the brother from romford he said look tell him for the first punch i've got your back no problem so the fellas i told him look he didn't need any he didn't need any more encouragement because like i said he's, he's a soldier <laughs> so you know you know table tennis the nets um they have these um, metal things that hold them so i took one off just in case you know because in, in, in prison everything's a weapon anything and everything so i've took one off and let's just say it's kicked off like bad i would say two thirds of that wing white people have just switched on these three white guys like everyone because they were going around bullying people and you know bullies are not appreciated in any community they've took a battering and the screws have got involved and whatever it was kind of like a nearly a mini riot it was kind of like a, a mini riot they've took the three guys they took them out of the prison look you guys got to go and they've moved me and the brixton lad back to dorset house because like a mini riot and you know there was some there was a bit of racial tensions or whatever what not so they moved us back to um dorset house and that's where we finished that's where i finished my sentence on dorset house but it's from there i made a lot of connections in south london particularly So in 2006 a British born black Muslims versus Jamaicans gang skirmishes kicked off in HMP Wellingborough yeah that's in Northampton and a close friend of yours was brutally stabbed, stabbed yeah Sammy um so um that prison there was HMP Wellingborough in Northampton this was in 2006 I believe it was um so you were back in for something else yeah some drugs charges and whatever so I was back in prison um this is weird to say but it was a nice prison though we like it it was it was a good prison you know we we had a lot of things we needed that not you can't necessarily get from the prison so we enjoyed being there and um you know race is sometimes used in funny ways so on our wing we had jamaican yardies which we had a very good relationship with you know and some of the yardies they didn't have families in the uk they had um uh, they, they were hustlers So because they never had family so sometimes they would struggle with certain things from the outside so we would take care of them. But remember not every yardie knows each other. There's different gangs, different areas in the UK and whatever. So what's happened there seemed to be some type of altercation between a South London Muslim, a, a British born Jamaican. He was a see that the differentiate the differentiate sometimes between British born Jamaicans and yardies who are from Jamaica. So there's been an altercation between a British born Jamaican and a yardie which is now spiraled out of control. And 
on the face of it is turn is come is is like a a Muslim was his Jamaican yardy thing, and it wasn't really that. It was just two groups of people that has got into a situation now where it spiraled. So there was some violence going backwards and forth, forth, forth. I had to be a bit careful because I associate a lot with certain Muslims that were involved in the drama. So I had to be careful how I step around the prison because there was a number of stabbings and things like that. So I had a good friend from London. Um, he's a African brother. Um, I believe he's an Eritrean. I think he's a half Eritrean, half Somali. Very good friend of mine. He's riding for his South London people. That's his. That's his close friends. So he's riding for them. So we're like, we're involved by default. Do you understand what I mean? So one day he's gone out to education or whatever, whatnot. He's come back onto the wing, and as he's walking past me, he's like looking straight through me. And then I notice some blood above here, above his chest. And he's walked past me, and I think he's collapsed in his cell. So obviously they've locked down the prison. Everyone's on lockdown now. So he's got rushed to hospital. We never saw him again after that. Ever, I think they've patched him up, and apparently it's quite a serious stabbing. And if I don't, if I remember correctly, the shank might have come out on the other side oh. because in that prison they had metalworks where you could smuggle things out of metalworks. You understand what I mean? And them Jamaicans weren't playing games. They were they were serious. You know, they were they were about their their shank game. Now it's come on the BBC radio, Northampton or Wellingborough, or whatever you call it. So it's become kind of public now. So they've locked the prison down. So anyone who they thought was associated associated to the to what they believe were the black Muslims, you're gone. They call it swagging. Swagging is when they come take you and you're out. So literally they're taking people every hour, sending them Hull, Lincoln, all types of crazy places. So they they wasn't sure about me because I was Asian. So they wasn't sure where I stood in the whole drama. So I managed to stay there. Me and one of my close friends, we managed to still stay in the prison. A few few other guys managed to stay. So once they dispersed all the all the Muslims at the prison, they um they um with the Muslims they they split them, but with the yardies they move the yardies around the prison. So like one went on this wing because you don't necessarily mingle with the rest of the jail. So once they've done that, there was one of the Jamaican fellas that were involved in the beef on our wing. And he ended up getting stabbed. He got stabbed on the wing, what they believe was retaliation. They've locked down the prison. They've come to my door and they've accused me of doing it. They said, you're getting swagged. It was you, we know. And they said something like, you're going to Hull or Lincoln or somewhere crazy. And this is like hundreds of miles from where I'm from. Where I'm from. So I was like, nah, you can't send me there. You know, this is far. And remember the racism aspect as well, when you go to certain places. So my friend said to me, barricade your door. Barricade your door and flood your soul. You know, like flood your soul, like, like a standoff sort of thing, you know, like negotiate basically. You know, I'm sure you know about these sort of things <laughs> from America. Mm. So I barricaded my door. I've hid my, I had two phones. So I've put my phones in a stashed place in my belongings and I flooded the cell. And there was some type of negotiation. As they say, look, let us in. I'm saying, no, I'm not going. How? You're not sending me that far. 
he said, right, look, we'll take it on the block and we deal with it from the block. We'll see what we could do. So I knew how to go anyway. So I said, I, I unbarricaded the door. They took me to the block. While I was in the block, they said to me, no, you're going up north. So I was like, oh man, this is a problem, you know? And it was, you need to understand when you're from down there, you're not going to get no more visits. It's, it's, a pro, it's a massive problem. And I was like, well, oh, this is a problem. So I was in the block, but I've got two phones stashed basically with me, you know? And you need to remember like the prison, prisoners work in every field of the prison. So prisoners come from the wings to work on the blocks. So you can get certain things smuggled into, the block is um, solitary confinement. You could get certain items smuggled in from the workers into the block. So I managed to charge it on the phones and I've made a, I just told my friends on the street what's going on. I said, listen, I'm in the block. Boom, boom, boom. I think they're going to send me up north so you might not hear from me for a week odd and whatever. That's all I said to them. Nothing else. What's happened the next night? The shift changes at 9pm. The screws come out and the new night works, the night prisoners, you know, take over the shift. Allegedly, I never saw it because I'm in the block. Uh, some cars pulled up with alleged gang members and they didn't they were not threatening to come to do anything it wasn't like that so they've approached as they're walking obviously the prison officer seen what happened and ran back inside the prison because they're thinking oh something's going on but it wasn't i don't believe it was like that um one of them one of the guys within the gang he said look can i speak with whoever the so spoke to him i think he said look you can't send him up north i'm a c category prisoner i'm not high high risk prisoner like this is a you're doing this out of spite there's no reason for you to send him up then perf and they said i think he's got problems up north so if something happens to him up north we're holding you responsible so remember i don't know anything's gone on now <laughs> the words got around the prison though it's got around the prison and one of my friends that was involved in this he was in prison as well he heard before i heard because he was still on the normal wings i'm gonna do a like a podcast with him about this incident you know um he's from west london so what happened was in the morning, I think 10 o'clock, the security screw has opened my door. And he said, um, have you got any issues? I said, no, nah, I've got no issues. Apart from the fact you want to send me up north. He said, we're treating you okay apart from that. I was like, yeah, it's fine. you know, No problem. So he closed the door. Remember, I know something's happened now, but he's not telling me. And I'm oblivious to what's happened. A couple of hours later, the prison governor opens my door. And he said to me, we had an incident last night. And like I said, they wasn't being threatening or, or like violent towards them. Um, they said that the, the person who came, the people who came outside the prison, they believed um, were intimidating and things like this and whatever, whatnot. But they wasn't violent and whatever. And they were speaking about me and that you can't go up north for whatever reasons or whatever, whatnot. And this is a true story. Sometimes prison officers will send a Muslim to a certain prison just to get beat up. Mm. Like this is quite common, you know? So they will send like a known Muslim figure to a prison they know is racist. And that's what I felt they were trying to do to me. Because one of the lads that got swagged, he got sent, I'm not going to say where, he got sent, he got beat up the first day he went there. Mm. Do you understand? I mean, because what are you going to do against 20 people? You're not going to do that as one guy. So what's happened now is he said to me, okay, where do you want to, ideally, where would you like to go? 
So I had friends in HMP Mount and I had friends in HMP Rye Hill. So I said, HMP Mount or Rye Hill? I don't mind, either one. HMP Mount is a C category prison, so I'm eligible for that. HMP Rye Hill is a B category prison. I should have never said that. Worst mistake I made. But I never knew how bad the prison was. So I said, or Rye Hill. I was on a private bus with prison officers handcuffed about three hours later going to HMP Rye Hill. That's by Coventry, I believe. I didn't mind going there because my friends were there. So that's a whole other saga. So that's that's basically my story in HMP Willing, bro. When you said you flooded your cell, how did you do that? So what you do, so you've got your taps and the taps, they won't stay open. They come back up. But you just got to block your sink and you just got to keep them down until it floods. I'm not talking about a serious flooding. Probably mop it out in 20 minutes. But there was water coming underneath the door and stuff like that. It was just like a negotiation tactic, basically. Take us into Rye Hill then. Rye Hill, oh gosh. That prison there. It was basically a private prison that was, I think, opened in 2001, if not, if I'm not mistaken. And people need to understand the difference between private and HMP. HMP is ran by Her Majesty. Private prisons are run by security groups. I think it's called um, G4 and places like that. Rules are slightly different in them prisons. Once you're in them prisons, it's very hard to get out. Because remember, they get paid per inmate. Do you understand what I mean? So I've gone there because my friend's there. It's a B category prison, so I shouldn't really be in there. I've got like a year left on my sentence. So I shouldn't. There's lifers in there doing like 20 years. For, I've met people in there doing 20, 30, 15, all types of years. So when I'm in there, get there the first night, take my phones out. I've got two phones on me. I phoned up my mate who's in the prison. He's got a phone, obviously, also. I won't say his name. I just call him G for now. Um, he's still in, he's in prison now waiting for some pro hearings, I believe. Um, so I called him. I said, I'm here. Like he, Because he's saying to me, I'll come here, come here. It's a really good prison, you know? <laughs> and the reason why it was a really good prison to him, because the amount of drugs he could get in there. That's, mm. That made it a good prison. So I've got there. He said to me, strap up I said what he said oh, this jail's not a joke like it really goes off in here I was like so why are you telling me to come here for <laughs> you know I'm a, I'm a year away from going home <laughs> so he's told me strap up I believe he sent me a shank over from you know the workers or whatever so he sent me a shank over <laughs> so like, but it was okay it, it was not bad it was okay you know it was, it was prison's prison at the end of the day. you just got you just got you just got to get on with it so we're in Rye Hill now and there's a lot of stabbings at that time. Um, I That's the first time I saw someone get stabbed in the Friday Muslim prayers. That would never happen. There was beef between two Manchester gangs and two very big person. I'm not going to say the names, but they're very, they hit the national headlines, these guys. There was some ongoing drama, I'm guessing, from the street. And one of them in Friday prayers, while this, it wasn't while the prayer, it was while the sermon was going on. I was at the back, I didn't actually see the stabbing, but someone just, I think he stabbed him in the head or something like that, or like, caught him in the ear or something. So that just shows you how crazy that, and it wasn't because of violent prisons, because of a new prison. The rules hadn't been like solidified. So I literally slept with my shank, dug into the side of the mattress at night. If you got caught with it, I did get caught with it in the end, but I weren't taking the chances. Because when you got phones in there and you got certain things in there, people, might want that so after induction I've moved on to my friend's wing so I'm with my friend G now we're together 
my friend G is like a a different type of guy, you know, very a lot of heart. So in, when you go in the prison system, you won't see a lot of people wearing Rolexes, because why would you? But some prisoners do. Um, he had a twenty thousand pound gold Rolex on. He had a Cartier diamond ring on, and I think a fifteen thousand pound earring, certain carrot diamonds or whatever. Can't in prison, you, can't believe you're allowed to have that. If there's pr I've met loads of people wearing Rolexes in prison. Yeah, but what I mean is, like in America, you can't have anything. Yeah, in England. HMP Wellingborough let you wear hats, caps, proper light snapbacks. You could get them from outside. Some prisons at that time let you wear have unlimited pairs of trainers. So you could have like 10 pairs of trainers in some of your cells. It just differs from prison to prison. There is some prisons that don't let you wear your own clothes, but most do. So I'm on I'm on the wing of my friend now. And we're doing our stuff, you know, we're living, you know, we're living in there. You know, certain things are coming over the walls and stuff like that. So we're living qu quite nice, you know? But the prison is very violent though. There's a, very, there's a lot of people with problems in that prison because there's people who have actually been, because you go from, for example, high security after 15 years into Right Hill. So imagine them guys who've been there for 10, 15 years where their mind's at. So when we're in there, my friend gets into an argument with someone. I wasn't close by, so I didn't see the reason why he got into an argument. And my friend's punched the dude. My friend G has punched this guy. So people have come in between, split up the fight and whatever. And we kind of thought that was maybe it naively. I think the next day I was on the ones, my mate was on the twos. I'm, at, I'm on the ones, I've come out for dinner. As I've come out, I've looked on the right hand side and G's in the, in the queue. The guy who he's punched has snapped. You know, have you ever seen them hot pepper sauce bottles? I think it's called Encona. Um, hot pepper sauce. That's that's a weapon in prison. You, it's very hard to break that bottle. There's a strong, strong bottle. So he's hit my friend on the head with that bottle, but he's not got a good grip on the bottle. So as he's hit him in the head, he's dropped the bottle. My friend has grabbed him and starts strangling him. But when the prison officers looked. They've only seen my friend strangle him. They've not seen anything else. So he's strangling. Prison officers came, grabbed them. Put, they're actually next. They're actually next door neighbors. Then in the they like. So you got say for example cell number twenty five. My friend's in there. He's in cell number twenty six. They've banged them both up, and in a normal HMP prison, you'd go straight to the block. But this prison, I don't think they actually kind of knew exactly what they were doing at that time. A year before I got there, someone that was actually murdered in that prison on the on the wing I was on. He was stabbed to death. That's, that's on Google actually to find that. So they're both banged up now. My friend's got a nicking for assault. He has to go into adjudication in the morning. So he's not allowed out his cell until adjudication. He's got to stay until he goes down to the solitary confinement for the adjudication. If he gets found guilty, he's gonna have to stay there and whatever, whatnot. But while this has all happened, the individual who's hit him with a bottle has told me, I'm going to fuck you up because that's my friend, isn't it? We hang around together. So I'm like, okay. So now I've got a choice to make. My friend's going to the block tomorrow. He might not come back. And I might be left out here alone. So you have two choices now. You either make your move or you press the button and you say, get me out of here. I've got problems. And that's a pill you 
that some people don't like swallowing, you know. So I was like, oh, okay, what do I do now? You know, this is this is a, this is a problem. So I made my mind up what I was going to do. The openness for association. So after, as they opened the ones up first, I ran up to the twos. I'm talking to my friend through the door. I was scanning on door. He'd be all right. It's having a conversation with him. As soon as the screws opened the next door, I ran in his cell with the same bottle that he hit my friend with, and I've smacked him around the head on the temple. But I've got him quite good, so he's got concussed straight away. Obviously, prison officers, right? It's kind of a kamikaze thing. So for <laughs> me, it was like I depressed the buzzer. And go and swallow that pill Or make your move So I said Okay I'll make my move You know So anyway I've hit the lad He's fell on the bed I've jumped on top of him Prison officers ran in Prisoners have ran in And just split us apart And This is how Unorganised that prison was So there's an obvious situation Going on to the wing now So we should all be down the block The, the kid that got hit with a bottle By me He's said to the prison officer, oh, I want to squash the drama between these two and whatever, whatnot. So he's asked the prison officer if he could come into my cell and we resolve it. And this is like the most stupidest thing you could do. But like I said, they're not HMP prison prison officers. They're, they're a security group. There's some articles online, actually, if you Google it, about the staff there. They were, they were good staff, but they didn't know how to deal with certain situations. The prison officers asked me Can we let him in And you guys just resolve this Between you guys Like have a conversation basically Not fight obviously I said like cool But I've got my shank on me So I thought if he tries something I could defend myself you know But the lad was He was a cool guy He's come in and said Look he's spiraled out of control You know he hit me And whatever whatnot. I don't want to I want to resolve this And we just resolved it And it was done They kind of I think Dropped everything And let us continue on the wing Like normal it was, but it was nothing else happened after that. A week after that, I believe it was, I'll, the riot squad, um, you know, when they come with the shields, they've come to my door. Sorry, they've come to my door first and they said, strip, strip, cell strip, cell search. I said, no, nah, I refused it because I've got a shank in my bed. So I refused it. And there's no windows there. You can't open the windows, if you understand what I mean. You can't, some prison you can open the windows, but these are like windows with no opening, but they've got vents. So you can't. Really get rid of nothing The shank's too big To flush down the toilet So I stuck it somewhere Try to hide it They've come back Half an hour later With the with the shields Pinned me up I wasn't really resisting I wasn't Didn't make no sense resisting They searched my cell They found the shank um, That goes straight To the block And when I was in the block Because it was a private prison Like I said They don't like Moving prisons, up, prisons out So I know now I'm probably going to get Shipped out how long So they said to me Look you could stay down here Or you could go into another wing And you could have been in the block For like Three months Waiting for a ship out From a private prison So I said look I'll go to another wing It's fine It's not a problem So they put me onto Another wing um, It was called um, uh, I can't remember what it's called now Edmonton I believe it was Or Edwards or Edmonton They put me on that wing Um I spent a few months on that wing And that wing was much better Actually there's a lot of more um, Older people on there And that's where I met A very famous person um, From the UK Who was in prison at the, I won't say his name But that's where I met him Very good guy And yeah So that's the, that's the story of Rahul I think he was in for The one who was in for The racist murder But you didn't find him racist They alleged It was racist murder But like I said Allegations Look Look at this I've experienced racism My whole life 
you understand what I mean? Yeah. They're saying he's in there for a racist murder. But I have to be honest, I never found him racist. Mm-hmm. I don't know the ins and outs of has he changed, was he racist? I don't know nothing. I have to go by what I see. Yeah. And this individual helped me a lot in prison. I was, I was a very rebellious individual. Not rebellious in a violent way, but I would, wouldn't follow rules. For example, when you go to sentence prisons, they will tell you get a job. And that's kind of mandatory in some prisons to get a job. I was like, but why would I get a job for £10 a week? That don't make no sense to me. I was the same. I got written up for refusing. Exactly. So yeah. you stay in your soul. So when you enter the prison system, you start a standard regime. If you behave, you go on enhanced. You get PlayStation and things like that. If you misbehave, you get basic. They take your TV away, cut down your visits to two a month and things like that. I spent five, nearly five years behind the door, behind the actual door. I have never, ever seen enhanced. Never got it because I just couldn't do things like they would try to send you to like woodwork. They're selling these items outside, or some company has contracted them and they're making hundreds of thousands, millions of pounds. And you want me to? I think one of the salaries was eight pounds a week. And I was like, Are you taking the piss? And they're like, Oh, but you're getting out. They think they're doing you a favor by you getting out yourself. But I'm like, I don't mind being myself. I don't have an issue with it. You know, I'm in prison still wherever I go. So I think that particular inmate, he saw, like I was young. So what he would do when everyone's going to work and I'm on the wing in my cell, he would say to the prison officers, let him out. And he just hang around in my cell because he was a wing cleaner. He would clean the wing so his door stays open. So I would just sit in the cell, we would chat and, you know, and things like that. So I found him to be a, to be a good person. Maybe we disagree on some things in life, which is normal, you know. But I never saw what they alleged from him. And he went out of his way. He was he was very good. He had a very good relationship with the Muslims. He went out of his way. And he, he had a lot of respect for my religion as well, you know. So you got to give respect back when respect is shown. So what his situation was personally, I don't know. But I didn't see that from him, you know. So you got out and then in 2003... There's just like a massive shooting in your neighborhood. Now, this was before. Oh, oh this was before, sorry. Yeah, this is before. Oh, yeah, because they were in 2006 there. Yeah, um, there was, um, there was a, there was a, there was a, there was a music group. Where one, one of the stars in the music group was quite a famous star at that time. Big Brothers. Big Brothers, yeah. <laughs> that, that's how it's spelt. So, this was a, they were quite famous at the time, 2002, 2003. They had, they, she, the the girl in the band had a brother who was kind of street affiliated. And I don't know the ins and outs. I just heard through the grapevine, the rumors and whatever, whatnot. There was a, it, it was in our neighborhood though, right in the middle of our neighborhood. There was like a massive shooting. Uh, there were some rumors about 50 rounds were fired, whatever. Four people were shot. Um, One of them apparently I think was quite serious. Um. I don't know the reasons what and what happened. I don't know, but it happened in our neighborhood. You know, we never had a clue it happened until the next day. Um, the next day, I think it was the next day, or the day after that, we woke up and they've literally sealed off my whole area, armed police, and I got nicked. A whole bunch of us from the neighborhood got arrested and whatever, whatnot. I feel it was more for publicity thing, because it it was on like the sun. 
because of who who the brother was. So they had to do something. Um, so they arrested a whole bunch of us. We was in there for a few hours, not even like a couple of nights. And we were in there for a few hours and they let us out and whatever, whatnot. So that was on the national headlines. That was like a big thing back then. You were falsely charged with murder and you had to go to trial? Yeah, that must have been stressful. We were actually on remand for nearly two years for that. Because there was a number of... um, It was it was a very... That's kind of what made me change my life. Well, who died? Um, It was an individual, they said... Um, they, I think they were they were alleging it's something to do with the drug trade and whatever, whatnot. Um, like I said, sometimes people are more worried about selling a story than the actual truth. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, and whatever. Yeah. So what happened? I actually got charged while I was in Rye Hill. I was actually in Rye Hill when they charged me. So I'm in Rye Hill. The prison officer comes to me and says, "You've got a parcel at reception." So I'm like, "Okay, I'll go get my parcel." I've gone to get my parcel. And the police is there So I found that quite strange I was like What's up? They said you're under arrest for murder How's that feel when they say that? Murder? I'm not going to lie It kind of like Shocked me You know You're in prison You know And I was like What the hell are these people talking about? The thing is to get more charges While you're in prison Yeah yeah So th When they said that It was kind of a bit shocking But okay like, They couldn't tell you nothing though You're under arrest You're getting taken back down To the, to the neighbourhood basically To the police station so anyway, so what happened was we got there, they charged us. It was me and my co-defendant, they charged two of us. And my co-defendant was in prison. Let me backtrack a little bit. Um, so I was in prison on drug charges. I was doing a sentence. I was not far from coming home. I was about a year from coming home. My co-defendant, they made a very, he went prison 10 months after me. and They made a very big deal and it was lies what they basically put him in prison on. So he was they alleged that they went to a nightclub one time this is what my co-defendant was in prison for so he's in prison i mean we're both in prison and then we both get charged for this but this is the reason why he was in prison so he was going to a nightclub in london while he was going to the nightclub in london so19 they surrounded the car there was three guys in the car they shot the engine shot out the tires and whatever whatnot and he got arrested for possession of firearm. There's this final firearm in the car, but there's three people in the car. It wasn't his firearm, from what I understand, but that's irrelevant now. He ended up getting six years for the firearm. So he was in prison for the firearm. So he was in another prison, I'm in another prison. So they arrested both of us at the same time. Took us back to the neighbor neighborhood, charged us, and we've gone back to our local prison. A week later We're back in our local prison From there we spent Nearly two years on remand That's a very long time To spend on remand It's very unusual To spend on remand Because so much problems With the case You know There was just It was a very You know when you're in prison For something you didn't do That's, that's a very different Place within your head Do you understand what I mean You're in prison for something You didn't do And You don't have like res Resources like you would ha have on the outside to fight the case. You understand what I mean? And I believe being in prison for something I didn't do led to like issues later on in my life. You understand what I mean or whatever? Because the strain it puts on you. Because remember, we, we were like 
known figures in the system. So you can't cry. You know, you can't show weakness. You got to still be that person in the system. You got to come out every day. You got to come out smiling, knowing you're in prison for something you didn't do. That's that weighs heavily on your mind state. I've seen people break in prison and then they're for domestics. Then therefore, you look at two years and they're crying. You start what I mean, and it's like your inside is kind of screaming, like "Yo, I'm innocent. I didn't do this," but it's kind of nobody's listening. You start what I mean. Everybody's innocent in prison. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, that, but this, this is the problem. We live in a country where it's innocent until found guilty. But once they put you in prison, they tarnish you for that brush. You're remand. People don't understand when you're on remand, you're not guilty. But the way they portray it, if they've got you in prison, you understand what I mean? Like I said, it's just the system we live in. You understand what I mean? So... After a number, of, there was a number of trials took place, mistrials and whatever. What they just kept Multiple us in there. Multiple trials. I believe it was two or three, if I'm not mistaken. That was you know? really stressful. I've got the articles. I'll show you them. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it was it was a very stressful time. You know. So in these trials, then what were they saying that your role was? I don't know. I think it, it seemed like they were alleging that I was one of the main. It seemed like that's what they were trying to say. Was it like a conspiracy or something? That's what they were trying to say, yeah. Drug some, conspiracy. Some, 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 I, I don't know, can't, you know, it's such a long time ago yeah, now, you know, it's yeah. something I try not to think about. I don't blame you. Because of the trauma that, you know, it gave us. But they were, it was something to do with the streets they were saying and they, they, they were accusing me of playing like a main role in it and things like that. And it was, you know, you see our neighbourhood became known for firearms. It became known for, for guns. And because of their weak intelligence, they just can't quite fathom the fact that just because somebody's from a neighborhood, that doesn't make him guilty for what someone else may have done. So you may have sold drugs, that don't make me guilty because you sold drugs. Because I say because I say hello to you every day. That is the environment we live in. Do you understand what I mean? So because our area was known for firearms, in their mind, we're all responsible for firearms. That's kind of how they looked at it. Like me personally, I've seen most firearms you can name. You understand what I mean? I've never handled them myself. I've never owned one. But because of the, you go to a nightclub, there's a thousand people in a nightclub and you see a guy from your neighborhood in the corner, he's got a handgun on him. How are you responsible for that? You understand what I mean? But if something took place in that nightclub now, you're going to get arrested. Just because you're from that neighborhood, and he done it. And that, I feel that's very wrong, you know? It's hard to shake people down for information. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So it's like, see, see, like, growing up from a young age, I've seen people with all types of weapons, like everything. I've never seen, like, in America is a different, is a different sort of, like, ball game. Like, there's the Eagles. England's not like that. One um, house I went in, they had a rocket propeller grenade launcher on the TV. What, someone got caught with that? No, no, they just had it on the TV. Wow. Yeah. In America, like I think, is like a like a sweet shop. Yeah, yeah. So you walk in and and this is the rarity, like Desert Eagle, whatever. Gun shows. In, mate of mine had a Gatling from World War Two. In England, is not like that. But, no. But there is like, I've seen like, Mac tens. I've seen AK forty seven. I've seen that. There's two guns that I haven't seen. I haven't seen a forty five, and I've never I've never seen a shotgun. But apart from that. I've seen people handling weapons, you know, like in nightclubs and whatever, whatnot. 
Um, so most guns that you hear about on the street level, are from, my, my brother actually went prison. Um, he got six, five years for, he got caught with a nine millimeter. He went, he went prison for that. He done a five. So what's your message now? You know, I feel that the kids, the youth out there, they're not, they, they're not going to listen to just anyone. They're not going to listen to politicians because politicians don't understand what they're living, what they're going through. So I believe you've got to tell your story for them to gain your respect. So the journey they're about to take, I've been on that journey and some of my friends have been on that journey. And it's like you're about to take a journey that we've been on. And I could tell you for free, there's no success at the end of that road. There's no end game. From the hundreds of people that we knew on road, we couldn't tell you one that became like this multi-millionaire and living in the villa in Spain. There's people probably got millions, but they're still involved. They're still in the drug game. So the message is, I'm not trying to be no one's role model or nothing like that. That journey that they're on and they want to take, there is no success at the end of that. I have friends right now, you know, this, this Encro conspiracy, the phones, they're in prison at the age of like in their 40s looking at 20 years, 25 years because of the street. Do you understand what I mean? So you will give your life to that system, hoping for some type of, you know, like glory, but there's no glory in that. You know, we could talk about this and laugh and joke about it now because it's in the past. Do you understand what I mean? But trust me, on a deeper level, when I look back now, I would never take that road ever again, like ever. And when I see people on that path, I'm like, you don't even know what you're getting yourself into. Because if you took that energy and put it towards something useful, you could make your life a success. And that's basically my message. Thank you, man. You're a really good speaker. So what would you want to say to the young people watching this? What I say to the young people is, don't be influenced by what you see. What you see is only one part of it. You know, most of the gangsters that I know now are suffering from PTSD. Some have got mental health problems. Some have got drug problems. Don't get me wrong. There is times in that life where you will have fun, but you could be a nine to five worker and have fun. You don't need to be in that life. So don't remember, don't ever forget the end of the movie. Don't just remember the start of it. What gangster do you, movie do you know that ended well? It never, trust me, it never... Look at, look at Tony Montana. It never ends well, you know? What I've told you here today, this is not even 5%. This is not even 10%. Do you understand what I mean? It's, it's been a traumatic road. For the last five years now, I've been working with like local gangs in squashing beefs. So in the last five years... I've stopped a number of shootings between rival gangs. Well done. Because sometimes not anyone could do it. They're not going to listen to anyone. There was an incident between two gangs a few years back when some money was robbed and it was escalating. And once it got to that point where it started escalating, there was a few skirmishes kicked off fighting and stuff like that. One of the other gang members had his watch robbed. So someone asked me to mediate between them. So I got involved and I managed to 
for the gangs to come to a resolution without violence. That, that was my goal, no violence. What's happened at this time? My family were actually with me. I was with my family. The police came around looking for me. They said, look, we, we need to speak to him, but they, they can't get through to me. So they left their card. So I've called the number. So what do you want? They said, are oh, you not in trouble? We just want to have a word. They said that we received intelligence that there's going to be a shooting in your neighborhood. We received intelligence. And I'm like, in shock. I don't talk to police, you know. <laughs> I thought first they'd come in to arrest me for something. I don't know what, what it was. <laughs> and they're like, look, we've, we've received intelligence there's going to be a shooting in your neighborhood. And we've been told that you've managed to resolve the situation. But remember, we come from a background where it's just like, what? I said, listen, there's not going to be any shooting in my neighborhood. And I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Goodbye. I put the phone down. Do you understand what I mean? And whatever. But, but like I said, sometimes it takes certain people to be involved. I had, a, I had a young lad one time got into a fight with another lad. The other lad got the better of him. These are young guys. The other lads picked up a revolver in a car looking for the other lad. I was on the phone for three hours with this kid convincing him to put the revolver down. And I managed for him to get off the road and put the gun away. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. So it's like politicians can't do that. Normal people can't do that. So it takes like a certain certain people to do things like that. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. You're good, man. It's for people watching this then who want to reach out to you, what's your preferred contact? I've just set up an Instagram page called Kicking Up Dust Media. Kicking Up Dust Media. Spelt with the I and not the G. Kicking Up Dust Media. Um, I'm trying to take it on social media now, you know, trying to reach out a bit, a little bit like what K Proverbs, K Proverbs is doing. It you got, was, are you going to do a YouTube channel? Uh, yeah, I've set one up. I've not got no videos on there right now, but it was K Proverbs that kind of inspired me. It was when I saw your interview with him, I saw the regret in him, you know, and that's not, it's not often you see that, you know, I saw the regret in him and the trauma and that was kind of what inspired me to to, to do this you know I probably wouldn't have done it I'm very camera shy so yeah I'm with social media kicking up dust that's my thing kicking up dust media that's my thing it's, it's a new thing there's gonna be a lot of content going on there I'll be doing a few podcasts of the people I was in prison with so some of these stories that you've heard we're gonna go in much more deal with people that were actually there you know what I mean yeah. and whatever what not so yeah it's, it's gonna be interesting it's gonna be an interesting journey so all of his links will be in the description box below this video. If you want to contact him, Instagram, there's going to be some content coming on his YouTube channel. So I will be subscribing to that. Also, he did reference the Kieran Proverbs podcast. I'll put a link down there in the description box. But if you want to find it, it's UK Crip in Manchester Gangland Part 1. And Part 2 should be coming out soon. So huge thank you to all the new subscribers. Subscription logos in the bottom corner. Huge thank you to Joe and James for coming out and um, sitting here in the freezing cold making these. And I don't have my gloves on today. Why has he got his gloves on? Why is he got his... It's all fucking cold in here. <laughs> huge thank you to Hits for coming down from Reading. And yeah, just let us know in the questions and comments what you thought of this. If you've got more questions or if you'd like to see Hits back. And um, a huge thank you to people who've gone down in the description box and supported our socials, donation links, and everything else. All right, man.
yeah, brilliant. Oh boy. <laughs> well done. Is that right, yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. How long did we get? 